Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello, my lovely betwixters. Tis I, Kate Lister. I am here for the... I've gone a bit oldie-fashioned and timey-talking. I don't know why I've done that. But I am here with thy fair dues warning. (laughs) Here it is. This is an adult podcast spoken by adults to other adults about adulty things in an adulty way, covering a range of adult subjects, and you should be an adult too. Well, that's covered our asses. If you happen to listen to this and get offended, tough tits don't come crying to us because fair dues you were warned. It's September 1940 and the Luftwaffe are raining bombs down on London. But down here from street level, amongst the bomb shelters and the darkened corners, relief and escape from the relentless fear and terror of war is found in some of the city's darker corners. Whilst some cower, some cuddle, and some, well, they do a bit more than cuddling, and why not? Quite frankly, I would as well if a bomb was going to fall on me. You might think that this sounds like some kind of perverse wartime erotica, but no, this all really happened and was an issue of national security. In fact, a home intelligence report from the government reported that in several London districts there were, quote, cases of blatant immorality which could deter others from using them. (laughs) Not quite the spirit of the Blitz that we are used to hearing about, is it? Indeed, as Quentin Crisp wrote of wartime London, as soon as the bombs started to fall, the city became a paved double bed. And this was not just confined to London's shelters. Oh, no, 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 no. And of course, it wasn't just straight sex that was happening either. Of course it wasn't. There were plenty of LGBTQ people signing up to go to war, and they have a history too. And that is what we are talking about today. What do you look for in a man? Oh, money, of course. <laughs> You're supposed to rise when an adult speaks to you. I make perfect copies of whatever my boss needs by just turning. 
Social courtesy does make a difference. Goodness, what beautiful time. Goodness has nothing to do with it, dearie. Hello, and welcome back to Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, with me, Kate Lister. Sometimes it is really hard to comprehend the magnitude of historical events. In order to try and get our heads around it, we often reduce and simplify them. And the Second World War is absolutely no exception. Think about it. By 1945, some three million British people had served, and each one with their own hopes, fears, desires. As such, the rich diversity of sexuality and masculinity amongst those who served is often left out of the history books, particularly those who were gay or bisexual or just anyone else on the sexuality spectrum. Today's guest is Luke Turner, author of Men at War, Loving, Lusting, Fighting, Remembering, 1939 to 1945. And in that book, Luke takes a look at the masculinities and sexualities of the men who served. Who was the D-Day hero who later transitioned to live as a woman? Were the 1940s more of a sexual revolution than 1960s? And what does our sidelining of this history tell us about our shared remembrances of the Second World War? I am ready to get to it if you are. Hello and welcome to Betwixt the Sheets. It's only Luke Turner. How are you doing? I'm all right. I've got a cup of tea hiding from the sun, bizarrely, given the weather. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm, I'm pretty good, thank you. I have started the day with a cold can of pop, which is a really stupid option. And I've just been staring at your tea thinking that I made a bad choice. That was a bad call, (laughs) (laughs) given you're having to wear a Yeti to keep you warm. You needed a brew. (laughs) Nobody can see this, but I have got a huge furry Udi on, which looks like I've I've skinned a Muppet. (laughs) But I'm very nice and warm, and I'm thrilled to be talking to you because your new book, Men at War, Loving, Lusting, Fighting, Remembering, 1939 to 1945, is out now. What made you want to write this book, Luke? What brought you to this research? Well, I guess the overarching thing is that I've always been obsessed with the war since uh, Second World War, since I was a kid. I was just obsessed with the war. I built model kits. I watched war films, and, and it became more sort of subtly interested in the history as as my childhood went on. But when I got to my teenage years, I felt like the war was something like I didn't quite feel as comfortable with it. And it was at a time when I was okay. questioning sexuality and. You know, the Second World War memory got very connected to football and there was all the jingoism and anti-German sentiment around the 1996 European Championships. And I was kind of going, as a somebody who might, I feel like I might be gay or very confused about sexuality, it's like there's this homophobic aspect to remembering the war. And it was almost like the memory of the war wow. had been sort of seeded to this sort of right-wing, jingoistic, quite macho force sort of thing. But then in recent years, I guess I got more interested in the Second World War again. I started reading the history books again. I started listening to more Second World War podcasts. I started building model aeroplanes again. You used to be careful with that stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, I have got one over there that I'm halfway through and there's one here that I'm, that's finished. And I started thinking about the war in a different way. And, you know, obviously I write about sexuality quite a bit. My first book's about being a bisexual man and the sort of struggles of that identity. And I started thinking about the war and thinking, there's this whole theory that, you know, when men are all together, 
they get desperate and they'll start having sex with each other. I was kind of like, well, actually, is the Second World War a time when all the rules of society were thrown on their head and there was a greater fluidity of sexuality and a greater allowance of fluid sexuality? And then I felt that I wanted to just use that and use the prism of kind of bisexual, queer, gay men in the Second World War to look at the wider masculinity of men who fought and why Britain as a country was so obsessed with the war and what that means today and how it affects our contemporary politics. So that's the kind of long, slightly weird answer of how I wrote this kind of odd book that covers so many things. It's not an odd answer at all. It's a fascinating answer. Because you're right, when when we think of the war, and obviously we're now generations that really the last people who fought in it are kind of, you know, exiting stage left as we speak. But it occupies this strange state of cognitive dissidence that on one hand we think of it as uber macho, men at war, men going and protecting the home and women staying and super heterosexual. But then we've also, we do hold a space for it of like all boys together, Winston Churchill famously called the Navy, said it's all rum sodomy and the lash. So we do have this sort of strange queering of it without really realising that we're doing it. Yeah, and I think there's a, you can see in some of the kind of, I guess, post-war humour, there's a sort of wink, nudge, nudge, wink, wink about a lot of that mm. stuff. But I, I kind of wanted to look behind that a little bit and look at the testimony of people who were there at the time and sort of see yeah. what their view was and try and do some sort of historical research about how much it does show up. Queer sexuality shows up in the records, but also a different heterosexual sexuality. You know, I think... There's a a lot of excellent work written about how women went into the workplace and that had a huge social impact. But I think the war gave women a sort of element of sexual freedom. Sometimes there was still sort of misogyny related to sexual behaviour by women, which I write about in the book. But I just felt there was just this fascinating muddling up a querying, yes, but also in, well, heterosexual and inverted commas, because part of the book is my theory that nobody is really particularly heterosexual. I think everybody is on a grey scale, and I think the Second World War slightly, you know, proves it. Just a couple of glasses of wine away. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, there's a lot of testimony by sexologists writing after the war, where one of whom even invented the term war queer, which was a man who was gay for the duration and then sort of went back home to his oh wife. Oh, God. I would say they were a war bisexual, but that term didn't really exist. But Mm. there's a lot of sort of, I went out for drinks with an American officer. We ended up in the same bed. And, you know, I feel so ashamed I can never go back to feeling as I did before. And it's obviously there's a lot of internalised homophobia with that. Perhaps there was a moment of realisation of sexuality, but people didn't have the words to express it. I've written about the history of sex in the war, sex work in the war, the First World War and the Second World War. And I think you're absolutely right. There is nothing like the threat of impending death. There is nothing like have this baton and please walk into a machine gun, son, to radically change people's attitudes to sex and morality. I would argue that that is pretty consistent throughout history. Yeah, I find that really interesting. I mean, I kind of didn't really go into the First World War, but I've read a lot about it. I do find it interesting that the number of brothels around on the Western oh, Front. No. And it was yeah. all sort of like the officer brothels and the, that's right, isn't it? Yep. And the enlisted men. And it was almost like, it seems like in the First World War, it was a bit more open even in the, than in the Second. But it's like, as, as Quentin Crisp, you know, I wrote about the naked civil servant a lot in the book because I love it. I love his writing. He was a wonderful character. And, you know, he said that as soon as the bombs started falling, the streets of London became a double bed. You know, and I thought that was fantastic, this idea of the blackout and this all this furtive yeah. going on. And I've always loved the kind of 
I mean, I know we're in this sort of age of sex positive empowerment and all of that, but I grew up having to hide everything. And I probably am a bit sort of hooked on that furtive Englishness around sexuality. Mm. I, there's a certain appeal of that, even though it's very problematic. But obviously there was a lot of that going on in parks and on the canal banks and and all sorts. I mean, you would, wouldn't you? Well, yeah. Like, the bombs are falling overhead. Should we, you know, let's have a snog. That makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so... Obviously, if people are enlisted and going to war, there are going to be gay, queer, bisexual, transgender people going to war as well. But how do you find their histories? Because this was a time when being gay could have ended you up in prison. Alan Turin famously shortened the Second World War. His work was so important, and yet he was chemically castrated afterwards for being gay. How do you find these histories when by its nature had to be hidden because it was so heavily punished? I mean, that was what the big challenge, particularly as I was researching the book during COVID, which meant all the archives were shut Ah, yes, and so on. And what I find fascinating is that there are very few testimonies that come through to us. And so they are this sort of like laser beam into that past Mm -hmm. and you get a tiny insight But there's the whole Carpenter archive at the British Library, LGBT archive, with some incredible oral histories. I use that quite a lot. There was a wonderful programme called It's Not Unusual from the late 90s, strangely enough, which is kind of a very progressive programme for that time, I think. And there's an amazing episode about queerness in the Second World War. And there was RAF pilot called Christopher Gotch on there. And he talked about his commander, Ian Gleed, who was a Spitfire race, like a classic RAF sort of tally-ho, chocks away, shoot down Jerry for breakfast kind of character. And he sort of outed him on this TV programme, which is, you know, kind of a sticky thing, but he'd done it. So, you know, I was able to then read Ian Gleed's memoir where he writes about a lover called Pam who didn't actually exist and his family were very surprised about. And you kind of read the biography of Ian Gleed and it turns out Pam was a young friend of his. It was clearly his his lover. So there was this sort of, just this snapshot of a character there. A lot of it, it has come down through the testimony of books. Dan Billany was a, a teacher and he was kind of a working class autodidact, basically. And he was gay and pretty openly gay. And he fell in love with a man in a prisoner of war camp in Italy. And together they wrote a book called The Cage, oh my where God. they created a third character who was a gay man. But it's really strange because Dan Billany was in love with this guy, David Dowie. They wrote a book together about this impossible infatuation by creating a third character, but they still worked on this book together, which suggests there was a tolerance. Even this man was having Mm. someone in love with him and it wasn't required. He still wanted to do this project. And they eventually left their prisoner of war camp and disappeared. They died together. So there are these incredibly powerful stories sort of in that way where you have to kind of pick through. But then there were people like Dudley Cave, who I found about uh, via Peter Tatchell, and he was a soldier, gay soldier in Japanese prisoner of war camps. Had like a lot of people had an appalling time in there, but he was out as gay after the war and was a gay activist. He founded the LGBT switchboard, did a lot of work around getting LGBT remembrance at the cenotaph with outrage. Absolutely wonderful man. I wish I wish I could have met him. So there were these sort of few characters who were more sort of wrote formal books. Like another guy, Peter Derome who uh, wrote a memoir, a very twinkly man, who later made Super 8 gay porn in New York, 
which BFI released on DVD, very hot. Probably the hottest DVD the BFI has ever released. I recommend uh, the erotic films of Peter Jerome, highly recommended. I'm making a note as we speak. Yeah, yeah, he's, he was amazing. So there are these very few people in the whole Carpenter archive and sort of tells you a lot. But what's interesting is a lot of these testimonies talk about having sex with multiple men. So there's mm-hmm. through these little glimmers you get of sexuality, you're suddenly this light appears on all these other men who are having yeah. a lot of gay sex in the background, supposedly straight, a lot of them. Yeah, you know, what happens in the war stays in the war type of Well, exactly, thing. that's the thing. And I do think, you know, obviously it's quite well known that in the 1950s society became very conservative. Mm-hmm. The kind of nuclear family was all important. Everybody wanted to forget about the war. And there was a great period of conservatism, and I call it the Great Repression in the book. Mm-hmm. And that's where Alan Turing was caught and humiliated and castrated. It's very sad because in things like the Mass Observation Archive, you have testimony from gay men or in Hall Carpenter Archive and some of the people I write about in the book, and they were terrified and they were burning letters from lovers who died in the war. Police raids on public toilets went up massively and gay pubs trying to catch gay men. So I always feel like there was this sense that we did all this stuff in the war that was shameful as a society. Uh, We need to now clamp down on it. Goodness me, wasn't it? Did we really do all that? And and there was this sort of reaction against it with this horrible homophobic conservatism that I think gay men, bisexual men, bore the brunt of. And I think women did as well because they were forced back into domestic arrangements, often into unhappy... You know, imagine if you've been delivering bombers around Britain for the war, then suddenly you stop. You've got to go back into domestic life and your husband's come back maybe traumatised. And have Tupperware parties. Yeah, it's just just a huge sort of deadening of Britain that happened in the 50s. And and that's where I think there's a relevance now because there is a certain powerful segment on the right wing of British politics that sort of thinks this was the glory days. Let's return to the 1950s when everyone knew who they were, everyone was white, everyone was heterosexual, everyone was pumping out children for the nation. And people see that as a nostalgic time, as I see that as a a very tough and quite bleak and grey, soggy wool, Mm. decrepit time after the kind of chaos and complicated liberation of the war years. And it certainly isn't the whole picture, is it? Maybe you're the same as me. When you're researching the histories of marginalised groups of people and people that faced huge punishment to disclose this stuff, oral testimony becomes like absolute gold dust. Did anybody come up and speak to you after the book or after you started to do this research to say, I've got a story to tell you? Well, I mean, this has been the thing. After finding it so difficult to find stories of people in the Second World War, the amount of people who've come up to me since the book came out saying, (laughs) oh, it's fascinating because, you know, my great uncle, he never married. We were always sure this and that. And you're like, oh, right, well, you know, I wish I'd found you before. And, you know, even in my own family, my mum's family were in the Plymouth Brethren, an extremely hardcore, hardline Christian sect. Mm. And it seems that some of her uncles, my great uncles or cousins removed or whatever, there was at least one or two who seemed to have been gay. And I was trying to find out about them, but there's just a sort of silence because they were ostracised from the family. And so, yeah, there are these sort of little quiet stories where people have feelings about their ancestors. And, you know, there are, I don't think there are any more queer people now than there were in the war. I think it's just... We approach in a different way. There is that problem as well as how do we see, you know, 
sexuality at that time. So I think the idea of fluid sexuality didn't, as far as I could work not, out... Not in the way that they could vocalise it the way that we do now. If the words had been around... Like bisexual as a word didn't really exist. I mean, one of the people I really love in the book and probably fell in love with the most is called Mickey Byrne, mm. who was a commando who ended up a German prisoner of war camp in Colditz, the notorious Colditz POW camp, where all the kind of establishment officers hated him because he kept trying to, he was he used to work with the enlisted men who were their servants, encouraging them to fight for a better future in Britain. And the posh sort of reactionaries like Douglas Bader, the fight race, thought this was really not on and you should be tried for treason. But he was bisexual and wrote about it. And he's one of the only men who kind of understood that fluid sexuality that I found and could really articulate it in a very, very beautiful way, his struggles with it, that were very familiar, to be honest, very familiar for my life and I think for a lot of bisexual men. I'll be back with Luke after this short break. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. To the Second World War. So what you were saying earlier is that, that there's a period of relative sexual liberation is often followed by a lot of repression. It tends to be cycles that we go through. After the First World War, we did enter, not for everybody, but if you were had a bit of money, knew where to go, uh, there <laughs> was a more tolerant period around sexuality. I'm thinking of like the Bloomsbury group who were chagging each other six ways from Sunday <laughs> and everything in between. 
Paris was known as like the lesbian capital of the world. That Oscar Wilde's niece Dolly went there and had all these amazing love affairs, and they were protected by money and privilege. But people did know that they were gay. There were gay bars. There was lesbian subculture. There were gay in Germany before the Nazis came in. There was Magnus Hirschfeld's Institute of Sexological Research. It was becoming something that was more openly discussed. And then the Nazis came to power and they repressed it. And obviously what people were primarily fighting for was to not have the country invaded by this megalomaniac dickhead who was killing everybody. (laughs) But did you find like a sense in your research that gay and queer people knew what was on the line for them and what was coming if, if they got in charge? I think that's definitely the case. Kind of maybe not overtly so, but mm. definitely subliminally. I mean, Chris Bryant, the Labour MP, wrote that book about what's it called, the Glamour Boys, who were the kind of gay mm. men who, you know, Berlin was a bit of a gay paradise in the in the twenties before the Nazis came, and I think they went and were working very well with Churchill, which I find fascinating. You know, Churchill is now seen in this appallingly binary way that does my head in. The left think he was mm. a racist, warmonger, terrible. The right think he's an unimpeachable hero. It's a, very complicated. Obviously, he was working with all these gay men and they were working with him as part of the campaign against appeasement because they knew what Nazism was. And I do think, you know, one of the I write a lot about heroism and masculinity in the book. And, you know, I grew up with a very homophobic notion that gay men were effeminate, mm. that they weren't warriors. They couldn't be heroic in a traditional sense, because who were the gay men who were alive in the Second World War that I knew? Kenneth Williams. You know, Kenneth Williams... Yeah is a total hero of mine. I love him. Absolute hero. But he he wasn't, you wouldn't have thought of him as a soldier, even though he writes a lot and spoke a lot about the war, and I quote him a lot in the book. But then I started thinking about these people like Ian Gleed or Mickey Byrne, these gay men who were warriors and quite tough people. And it's like, well, they, yeah, they knew gay people, and there must have been a lot of gay people fighting in the military who knew exactly what they were up against. They were as more at risk of persecution if we'd lost than anybody else apart from Jews and travellers. And therefore, they definitely had a motivation to be fierce warriors that heterosexual men arguably didn't in the same way. What was the army's stance on this in the Second World War? Did they have an official policy around same-sex relationships or did they just attempt to turn a blind eye and pretend it wasn't happening? I mean, that's the interesting thing is that, you know, technically it was forbidden. It was against the Articles of War. The RAF had a weird legal case where they were trying to work out who should be expelled from the service for different behaviours. And there's this sort of conferences about basically thieves and homosexuals. Do we chuck them out because we kind of need them? The Navy sent out one of their operational signal orders, which was all about how to investigate sodomy. And, you know, you need a medical officer and all of this. And, you know, there's all these sort of inappropriate behaviours are a very grey term that could be a catch-all. But statistically, there was less than 2,000 court-martials and even fewer prosecutions for homosexuality in the military during the Second World War. Arrests in toilets and so on went down massively during the Second World War. And, you know, obviously there were bigger problems, bigger things to be investigated. Mm -hmm. So I do think statistically it's kind of incredible there were less than 2,000 court-martials given how many millions of men were in the military. I think there's a lot of testimony within units that officers turned a very blind eye to it. There was one, one, someone I write about whose lover was in his squadron and got shot down and killed, and the commanding officer called him in first to tell him, even before he told the family, and gave him leave to sort of soften the blow and to prepare him. And Dudley Cave was very angry about the official structures of the military. You know, he he said after the war, and when he was in this 
campaign against the Royal British Legion, saying the army turned a blind eye to it all when it was useful, and then afterwards turned on us. They forbade gay men to serve in the military. They prosecuted gay men. And there was no remembrance of gay men at the Cenotaph. And the Royal British Legion were homophobic, aggressively homophobic. Group Captain Mountford, who he was having this letter spat with, was a very homophobic man. I mean, I'm happy to say the Royal British Legion now is very different. They have a big LGBT section and there's positive changes happened there. But I think definitely the official military turned a blind eye to it, by and large. Not entirely. I'm not saying it was easy for gay men in the military, but there was obviously a certain leniency. And I think a certain sense that if someone was good at fighting and they were a decent person and they, you know, weren't inappropriate, that was fine. And obviously there were other men for whom people knew they were gay, like Dudley Cave writes about in his prisoner of war camp, there was one soldier who went by the name of Clarice or something like that, who you could always find in a mangrove swamp. And a lot of soldiers went to her, him, depending on how they identified. You know, I think it was a man for kind of relief. So I think there was a sort of a blind eye to a lot of these activities. Dudley Cave is a fascinating person in your book and so brave and so courageous with picking up the campaign after the World War. I think what attracted me to him was the fact that he was imprisoned in Burma and I know that my grandfather liberated those prisoner of war camps. Oh, wow. But we didn't know that until after he died. He was such like a lovely, gentle, mild-mannered man unless you mention the Japanese, in which case you would suddenly get this rage of anger and it would always catch everyone off guard because it was so weird and precise. We never knew why. And when he died, we found that he had liberated the prisoner of war camps in Burma. And that's what's very interesting, again, as well as Dudley Kaye's LGBT activism. I mean, I I can see why men who were in those prisoner of war camps or saw them like your granddad were so angry because the Japanese did treat prisoners appallingly. They thought surrender was shameful and they starved them and executed them and forced them to build the railway on the River Kwai, which is, you know, the film was about, which is where Dudley Cave was. But his whole, you know, he was a Christian, a Unitarian Christian. And after the war, he had a big drive for reconciliation with the Japanese. He went to peace ceremonies with one of his former captors, a translator, on the River Kwai and was all about reconciliation and trying to build understanding with the Japanese, which is very, very beautiful. And he got a lot of stick from fellow former prisoners for doing that. And I, I can understand that. You know, I, the book, I really try not to be sort of judgmental and kind of finger waggy mm-hmm. and so on. But I find Dudley Cave's intense humanity very, very beautiful. I was really moved by that. And I think it's because I know that, like, obviously my grandpa and many other men would have been furious, like, their whole lives. And the fact that he actually went back to try and build connection, I found I found that really profoundly moving. and. After that, he campaigned for gay and queer representation in remembrance Absolutely. services and plates, yeah. didn't he? Yeah. Outrage used to do an unofficial remembrance service at Cenotaph where they'd lay a pink triangle, which was obviously the symbol that the Nazis made gay and yes. bisexual men wear in the concentration camps. And I actually, you know, long after his death, his campaign was successful. I think it was 2021. Mm. You had LGBT servicemen and veterans and service women marching openly as part of Remembrance Parade, you know, and I think that's a wonderful, yeah. a wonderful tribute to, to something that Dudley Cave started in the 70s and 80s when it was impossible, inconceivable that that could happen. I mean, I remember the, I'm old enough to remember the 80s and how homophobic culture was. And again, that was why I went away from the war, because I thought, mm-hmm. you know, 
the war was not for queers. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I couldn't have been more wrong. No, you could not have been more wrong. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, one of the interesting things in your book, I thought this was fascinating, was as another thing that the war did, if you want to like attempt to look at a positive, I don't know if you could call it that, but surgery, the technical skills around surgery, what people are capable of, the fine art of surgery, obviously improved dramatically because... Of course, surgery is going to improve when you've got poor lads being blown to bits on the battlefield. But you're drawing out links between that and gender reassignment surgery, which I had never even thought of before. That was fascinating. Yeah, yeah. That was one of the most exciting things to kind of make that connection was that, you know, I'd read books about Richard Hillary, the Brathler Britton fighter race who was severely burned, you know, a bit of a hero of mine as a kid. And he went to a hospital in Sussex, it was called the Guinea Pig Club, where they would fix men's faces. And the surgeon from there, Archibald and McIndoe, who were his rivals, they pioneered this rhinoplasty surgery. And they were doing men's faces, but also men's genitals when they'd kind of had really unpleasant injuries in their genitals. And after the war, that same technology was used for the first gender reassignment operations, both on trans man, trans woman. And I write about Roberta Cowell in the book, who was a Spitfire pilot in the war and a very angry man, kind of a man's man, really into aggressive masculinity, hated anything city, was massively homophobic, drove cars, was into motoring, flying Spitfires, got shot down, was in a prisoner of war camp. And then after the war, obviously suffering from PTSD as well, I realised they were intersex and sort of started to understand where the resentment and their rage, male rage, came from, was being in the wrong body. And their first gender assignment on a, a man to become a woman was on... Robert, then Roberta Cowell. And there's an amazing story, which I write about in the book, where Roberta Cowell is in a pub having a drink and some some idiot comes up, pistachioed kind of chap, going on about what he'd done in the war to try and impress her. And he was doing this sort of, waving his arms around to show he was in his spitfire. And I know Jolly came did and I had to, you know, to lower the flax, but I couldn't because the... Controls were shot away and, and Roberta Cowell had to point out that he was referring to the... I can't remember if it was Spitfires did or didn't have pneumatic and it was actually hydraulic, but one way round. You know, so Roberta just totally schooled this idiot, you know. And I love that story. I, mean, I think Roberta Cowell's later life was more complicated around her gender, but I think that's part of the time. You know, we could see the bigotry against trans people now. I think in the yeah. mid-20th century it had been even worse. So it's kind of maybe not surprising Roberta Cowell's gender reassignment caused problems for her later in life. I do think it's complicated, but it is wonderful that it's exactly the same surgery still being used today. The McIndo technique is still being used for trans people today. And that comes expressly from medical advances in the Second World War, building on medical technologies from the first, because the plastic surgery techniques kind of leapt ahead in the First World War, then everyone sort of forgot about them for years and then had to re revive the research in the Second World War. So I think that's a really a sort of a positive and a very beautiful story that comes out of the war. I think so. I think so. I think one of the, the saddest, I mean, there's a lot of sad history when it comes to the war, but one of the saddest things about queer history, gay history, is when you read these stories and people are so laden with shame and guilt and they shouldn't have been carrying any of it there was no need to feel like that but obviously that's you know 2023 looking back but that always breaks my heart when you read those stories about how 
the hatred that people feel towards themselves. Yeah, I mean, that's the really sad aspect to, you know, even Mickey Byrne, his sense of shame, he was blackmailed in those very common sort of gay blackmail situations that used to happen mm. in cruising places. And in a lot of the Hall Carpenter archives, there's a lot of shame. And a lot of the research by sexologists, there's just impossible shame I mean, I do think that also applied to heterosexual men in a strange way because there was so much shame around things like masturbation. You know, I think the male body and sexual behaviour and, you know, women were actively shamed, which I write about in the book. You know, all that kind of keeps dumb, she's not so dumb. All those famous propaganda posters that you can have on your wall. And they're pretty misogynist, really. It's sort of like the woman is this slutty character who's, who's going, disease. yeah, yeah, vector of disease. She's going to take all the secrets that you blab and tell the Germans. You know, there was a, a huge amount of shaming in all directions mm. in the war. But I think on this sort of very personal, private level, whether it was in while well, their partners were away or in their units, miles away from anywhere, people did overcome that shame for a short time. J.H. Witter, who I write about in the book, an appalling man, he totally overcame all shame and behaved like an absolute monster to a lot of women on his travels across Europe. And I wanted to bring him in as well as an example of this sort of like, you know, I'm not just celebrating masculinity here. I wanted to critique it as well. And he was a he was a right bastard. <laughs> you mentioned Mickey Byrne there. I thought his story was fascinating because he started off as a Nazi sympathiser, didn't he? What was his story? Yeah, I mean, he's really is my favourite, I think. I was going to ask you who your favourite person you wrote about was. He was gorgeous. I could see myself in him. Not in a kind of gorgeousness way, but the kind of <laughs> the, the fluid sexuality and the shame and the confusion <laughs> and not the Nazi sympathising. But he was a sort of middle class, quite well-to-do fella. Ended up writing about motor racing. And then in the 30s, he went to the Nuremberg rally and he even met Hitler and Hitler gave him a signed mm. copy of Mein Kampf. And it's very disturbing. There's pictures of him at the Nuremberg rally. He wrote these articles praising the Nazis and the marching. He even went to one of the very earliest concentration camps when it was kind of used for political prisoners and the mentally ill communists and was sort of writing about how these people were barely even human. You know, he totally absorbed mm. all of this horrible nonsense and he actually kind of recanted when he came back to Britain and, and sort of was woke up in a start yeah and essentially you know he was very concerned about the fate and the opportunities for working people he'd gone with good intentions and I think he saw what Hitler was doing as many Germans did as being the saving Germany and giving people work and sorting out crime and all of this and so he was taken in by it and then he came back to Britain and sort of realized it was goodness me, this was terrible, and spent a lot of time working class communities and then became a lot more left-wing. And in his memoirs, he writes, you know, I could have destroyed my letters to my mum where I'm praising Hitler. I could have destroyed these articles I wrote, but I felt it was very important that I didn't and I published them and I own up to how I was mm. taken in by this because this stuff is dangerous and this menace will always be here and people need to understand how you fall for it, which is just so... That's brave, that. Incredibly brave. And he was brave, you know, not just in the kind of going on this crazy raid to Saint-Nazaire where they tried to blow up the docks and then the next day the, there was a German film crew there filming these prisoners walking along and they basically put a load of explosives in the ship and they hadn't gone off yet, but Mickey Byrne knew it was going to go off that they've rammed into the docks. And so he's walking along and he does the V for Victory sign in front of the German cameras. So the Germans are putting this news rail out, saying, we've captured the British on their failed raid, but he's doing the V for Victory. And then a little while later, the uh, ship blew up and destroyed the docks. And he always looked after his men in the POW camps. 
He was a very good poet. He wrote a novel about being in Colditz. You know, he was just a really incredible man. And there's a really sweet, kind of amazing story about he had a friend in, in the Netherlands. And, you know, there was a big famine in the Netherlands at the end of the war. And her daughter was dying and needed medicine. And Mickey Burns sent all these cigarettes to her so she could sell them on the black market to buy medicine for her daughter. And her daughter survived. Many years later, Mickey Byrne was in a cinema watching a film, one of Audrey Hepburn's first films. And it turned out it was her. The girl he'd saved was Audrey Hepburn. And I didn't manage to get that story in the books. It didn't quite fit. But it's just this sort of lovely little incident in a just a, a wonderful wow. man's life. He had a partner, a female partner. And, and I know it was hard for him to be with her, but they made their relationship work. I think towards the end of his life, after she died, he was in a relationship with men primarily living in a little house in Wales but he's just an absolutely beautiful character and some of these you know Mickey Byrne is not a film made about him a while ago but they're just not really known and it's just been really lovely to write Mm. about them and hopefully bring their lives to greater attention in some way. Where are we up to today with gay history in the military? I mean thankfully it's you know we're not even don't ask don't tell we're certainly not throwing people out etc but we still have people around living today who were dishonorably discharged from the armed forces on the grounds of being homosexual and it's been like a permanent stain on their record for their life. I mean and I know that Alan Turin was given a pardon, and then there was voices after that going, he shouldn't have been pardoned because it was never a crime in the first place, which is quite a strong argument. Yeah, I think I'm sort of two minds because it's almost like you can't undo what was done. So if you say, oh, it wasn't a crime in the first place, so we just wipe it, I think it doesn't acknowledge the state's guilt. Maybe the state giving a pardon is is saying, we apologise to you. And I think there needs to be, I think there are the movement to apologising and I think two people who's post-war with dishonourably discharged has been moving on slowly. Mm. I have spoken to queer people in the military since the book came out, or ex-military, and they've told me some (laughs) absolutely sort of mind-bending stories about what was going on. I mean, one guy told me about how, you know, in the book I write about how the guardsmen, they're the sort of, you know, one of the highest regiments in the British Army. They guard the palaces, they're stationed in London, they're the ones with the pointy helmets with the feathers and they ride the horses with the huge leather boots. But they were notorious for sort of doing favours in the parks. Shocking. In the National Archives, there's all these minutes of conferences between the police and the army, kind of go, how are you going to sort this out and how many people have we prosecuted? The guards are at it again. And I thought this must have died out, like, you know, around the war years or the 50s or something. But I was talking to a soldier, former soldier, and he said when he was stationed in those barracks in central London, he'd gone on his morning jog around the rose bushes, which anyone who's familiar with London's queer cruising scene in the London parks will, the rose bushes in the Royal Parks will have a resonance. And he'd been on his jog going, oh, this is clearly a morning hookup area. Very interesting. He said, my jog occasionally did have a little detour, but apparently <laughs> the whole tradition of the guards cruising in the parks was killed by gay people being allowed to serve in the military because when it was forbidden, you could go and cruise in the park with, and there might be some guardsmen there, but because it was illegal, you'd get back to the barracks, no one would ever say anything because it was totally taboo. Mm. As soon as it was allowed to be gay in the military, 
you couldn't go because somebody might dob you in because there might be an out person who might say, oh, I've seen him in the park. So I thought that was that's like, kind of like a really so a really interesting twist on how complicated sexuality is in these spaces yeah. and how we can't just see it in black and white. You know, Absolutely. you hear all the time about bullying in the military, bullying mm. of women, bullying of queer people, racist bullying. I think anywhere where you have essentially what is still, even though there's a lot more women and queer people can now be out in the military, it's still quite a macho mm. organisation just by its very nature. So there's obviously going to be problems, but I do feel like things have shifted in a big way. And, you know, with remembrance coming up, you know, there'll be the LGBT people marching openly again. So, you know, I'm, I'm not kind of idealistic about it, but I do think there's positive changes have been made. Absolutely. Luke, you have been amazing to talk to today and your work is so important in reappraising who fought and what happened in the Second World War. And if people want to know more about you and your work, where can they find you? In the Rose Garden? Uh, yeah, <laughs> no, I've retired. <laughs> uh, I've retired from such things, alas. Um, I'm very bad, I don't have a website, but I'm on the Twitter X thing for now. Luke Turner Esquire, ESQ, which is a lot fancier than I really am. And I'm on the Blue Sky one, which I much prefer. It's a far more pleasant place. Look for Luke Turner on there. And then my website, the Quietus Music website, I can, can be found fire there so i'm sort of lurking in many places but not rose bushes anymore (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much for talking to me today i've enjoyed this so much thanks kate it's been great thank you very much indeed thank you for listening and thank you so much to luke for joining me and if you like what you heard please don't forget to like review and follow along wherever it is that you get your podcasts if you'd like us to explore a subject, or maybe you just fancied saying hello, you can email us at betwixt at historyhit.com. We have got episodes on everything from Napoleon's sex life to Rosemary Kennedy in our Kennedy Women's Special, all coming your way. This podcast was edited and produced by Stuart Beckwith. The senior producer was Charlotte Long. Join me again, Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, a podcast by History Hit. This podcast contains music from Epidemic Sound. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Thank you for listening to this episode of Betwixt the Sheets. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. 
As a special gift, you can get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code BETWIXT at checkout.